A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Smash Pod Royale. Hello, welcome back to Smash Pod. This is part two. If you want to hear part one, why not go back and listen to that? In the meantime, here's part two. I hope you enjoy. I really do. You know, the battle lines are drawn between mm. Sheriff Sean and Boss Rob Reiner. That, you know, I'm not going on the payroll. I'm not looking the other way. I'm going to bust it because I'm still a cop, even if I'm in, you know, orbiting Jupiter. And mm. uh, then we go back to the zero D gravity cells. And of course, somebody has slashed Boat's air tubes and he's burst. Mm-hmm. Somebody else has burst. Yeah. He's burst all over the inside of his suit. One thing that I, and here's one clue as to possibly backing up my reaching like hell but still valid theory that there is some kind of artificial null, gra- null gravity field being generated in those cells. Because when the blood drips out of his air tubes from mm-hmm. him having burst, mm-hmm. it drips upwards. Now, I've noticed some people say, no, this is a goof, because of course, blood released into a zero gravity say it doesn't drip upwards or downwards it just floats about as spherical droplets Mm -hmm. and that is true but if they're having to generate some kind of anti-gravity fields to nullify the gravity in those cells then the blood would drip upwards <laughs> because it's actually being actively repelled away from the anyway i'm gonna have to submit yeah. this podcast to bbc bite size <laughs> like i say this film really wants its cake and eats yeah. it as regards science i mean it it it's it respects you know the probable science of the situation better than some of them do because everything on happening on this station is ha- on this uh, mining colony is happening relative to and from something which is never seen but is just referred to as the space station mm. now where the space station is i'm not entirely sure one is given to understand that it's some kind of intermediate point between Jupiter and Earth. But it's much, much closer to Jupiter than it is to Earth because it's only 70 hours away via the transit shuttle. Whereas 
jumping ahead to the end, it's mentioned that in order to get back to Earth, you have to go into suspended animation for a year. Yeah. Now, that's fair enough, because with the kind of propulsion systems that we could reasonably develop in the next 100 years or so, it would take you about a year mm. to get back from Jupiter. Um, and that's one thing, again, that's something else which most science fiction just kind of dances around is what are the propulsion systems being used here and how you're not, because, you know, Interstellar, for all that it's a weird and waffly movie, is one of the few to really grasp the nettle of the hard science of interstellar travel being absolutely brain scrambling, mm. not just in terms of getting a propulsion system that would get you up to the kind of speed where you could make it from between the distance between stars, but also what happens to the laws of physics when you do. Because that's one of the weird things about Alien, of course, is that, and indeed the whole Alien universe, is that interstellar travel seems to be absolutely taken for granted. But it doesn't seem to be set more than maybe a hundred, couple of hundred years in the future. I mean, presumably, wherever they're bringing that mining platform back from at the beginning of Aliens, it's sufficiently far away that they can be taken off course to investigate a whole nother star system, which they're passing just on the way home. And it's, you know, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, without, here's the thing, I'm the world's biggest science fiction fan, but I always think, you know, it's worth pointing out just how improbable most of this stuff is. Even if we could get up to the speed of light, it would take us four years just to, to get to the next star along. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you are talking, if you traveling interstellar distances with any kind of regularity then you're gonna have to crank it up to several hundred times the speed of light and a how are you doing that and b what's happening to the laws of physics when you do so alien just kind of skirts around that it's implied that they've they've been in suspended animation for i don't know weeks or months mm. rather than like decades because at the end of the day it's not worth doing a bloody job if you've got to go to sleep for decades to get it done but uh, even traveling at the speed of light it would take decades to get back from wherever it is they've been um so yeah outland in that respect respects the science a bit more than a lot of the, these things do but yeah. it also you know the way gravity works in this movie is weirdly inconsistent though where the vacuum is it isn't is weirdly inconsistent but you know, it's doing its best it's doing its best to do hard science sci-fi rather than just space opera and you, you know you kind of need to respect it for that yeah, i need to ask you a question, even if it actually. gets a lot of it wrong <laughs> mm, uh, montone yeah montone's found dead do we think Ooh. that he was murdered or do we think that it was an autoerotic asphyxiation accident <laughs> it's yeah, never made clear in this day and age, no in this day and age you find a guy hanged inside a wardrobe <laughs> that's kind of where your mind goes yeah. these days unfortunately i want peter boyle yeah, at the end uh, to go all right look i murdered i murdered spato or spotter sorry yeah I had nothing Rosa, to. I had yeah. nothing to do with Montaigne. Yeah, no, he, yeah, no, no, he just wanked himself to death <laughs> in his locker. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, unfortunately, that's just where the mind goes these days. Isn't yeah, it? it is. I think we are to assume mm. that Montone has been murdered because uh, Shepard and the bad guys know he's been compromised. He's been got to by Sean. Yeah. So. Sean is now increasingly obviously on his own. Mm. And uh, actually, the rest of the cops in the cop shop are quite nicely played because they are just uniformly useless. Yes. Um, and again, that's a nice bit of show, don't tell. You are given to understand that a culture of slovenliness has been allowed to arise, if not actively encouraged, vis-a-vis -vis law enforcement at, at this colony. Well, you know, Sean does um, call them that, shit later. Yes. Well, that scene, that scene apparently where he staggers into the refit, I, uh, I could use a little help. Mm. And uh, he says, you're supposed to help us. My men, 
my man of shit. Um, <laughs> that scene is the one where it basically owns up to being high noon. Yeah. Because that scene happens almost word for word in the church in high noon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary Cooper staggers into the church and says, I could use some help. And the priest says, well, you've never been of any help to us. Why should we help you? Uh, and so that's, that, that's the scene where basically Peter Hyams goes, yeah, it's high noon. Bite mm. me. Um, <laughs> because now is it after Montone dies that uh, Sean finds the secret communication between Shepard and whoever his paymasters back on the no, space station are. No, first he... Um, no, what happens next? First he f- f- uh, finds Yario in the cold storage and they have a fight. Oh, and that's right, yeah. Yario strangles him, he, he pretends fight- to be dead and... Ah, yes! Yeah. From Russia with Love reference. Yes. I thought. Yeah. This is the second movie in which Sean Connery gets garroted, except he doesn't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in From Russia With Love, he, Sean Connery gets successfully garroted by Robert Shaw. Well, actually, he gets garroted by Robert Shaw twice mm. in From Russia With Love, he except does. the first time he dies, and then it turns out not to be him. Yeah. And the second time, he does and then fakes him out and then turns the tables on Robert Shaw. I mean, of course, the thing is, the, the train fight in with between Sean and Robert Shaw and From Russia With Love sets the standard for all fist fights in the movies going forward yes. i mean it's 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 an amazing secret i know we're not supposed to be talking about bond movies mm-hmm. now but just every now and again i know bond movies have a tendency of kind of sailing with the wind and going with prevailing trends instead of particularly in the roger years so mm-hmm. live and let dies a black exploitation movie mama the golden gun is for no real good reason at least partially a kung fu movie mm-hmm. and then moonraker is a space movie uh, you know but but every now and again they would innovate and one of the kills ways they definitely innovate View to, <laughs> view to a kills Goldfinger again, except yeah. silicon chips instead of gold. Yeah, you know, exactly. And with Andy Christopher Walken, so I can forgive it anything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he improvised the laugh before he fell off the bridge. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, he's, he's possibly my favourite Bond villain ever, just because it's Christopher Walken doing his Christopher Walken impression. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this, yeah, so Sean uh, discovers that the drugs have been smuggled in inside great frozen joints of meat finds all the drugs inside the first dealer, gets attacked by the other drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yario gets garroted by him, fakes him out, and then turns the tables on him. Mm-hmm. And then goes and, to see uh, yes. Shepard and says, I flushed all the drugs down the toilet. Yes, flushed all the drugs down the toilet. And, yes. and Yario's in prison, and then uh, Peter Boyle yeah. says, you're dead, you hear me? You're dead, yeah, exactly. Um, and you. also, one would think that, yeah, I hear you, yes. <laughs> And then we hear, is that when he finds yeah. the secret communication? Yeah, he taps, yeah. He taps Dis- Peter Boyle's line and then listens in, yeah. Yeah, and discovers Peter Boyle talking to whoever his paymasters on the space station are that mm. a couple of bad guys are being sent out on the next shuttle and they are going to fix Sean. Yeah. And that's when it properly becomes high noon. Yes. Because uh, at, at strategic vantage points all over the colony, there is a big digital clock, which is permanently ticking down to when the next shuttle comes in. Yeah. And so now Sean is assembling he's he's sort of doing what he can to be prepared he's mm. prepping his weapons and he's setting a couple of nominal traps for the, the bad guys when they get here um does he have another conversation with dr lazarus about now uh no he goes to the disco and gets the stink eye and then he speaks oh to that's right sergeant ballard yeah. played by clark that's peters right. from the wild by clark, mm. yes clark peters absolutely mm. he basically says will you, will you be on my side and he says well i got a family i can't yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it becomes why. apparent that, sh- and we know why. Yeah, mm. I mean the thing is, it's uh, 
Yeah, I mean, we know why ultimately Ballard turns out to be no help whatsoever. But I think it's quite nice that most people are not not helping him because they're bad guys. They're just not helping him because they want to stay out of the way of the bad guys, yeah. which is the plot of High Noon. It's yeah. not about collaboration with the bad guys. It's just about sort of passive submission to the bad guys, you know, because you don't want to attract their attention. And meanwhile, the clock is ticking down. He plays squash on his own and then hours. Lazarus comes to see him. That's right. Yes, yeah. yes, and they and they decide to get pissed. <laughs> yeah. Well, she yes. has that lovely line where she says to him, um, uh, "It's possible they sent you here because they just assumed that when you saw there was trouble, you'd go along with it, or you'd just leave." Yeah. And he says, "Well, yeah, I am that guy, but I'm not going to do that." Yes, that's Sean's acting scene in this yes. movie, isn't it? Yeah. And that's where I say that's that. Well, one kind of two of actually. Where, yeah. The other one's when which he gets you the, say the other one is the one, the one he gets the video call from his wife and son, which made yes. me think of Interstellar, uh, because yeah. Sean actually wells up, which you don't see him do very often. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Now Sean actually puts a bit more effort into this movie than I in, 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 than my memory was giving him credit for. Yeah. I kind of thought of this as just being you know Sean turning up, doing the Sean thing, getting paid, going back to the golf course, you know. Mm. Um, but he actually those you know because it's hinted well, not even hinted, that nobody who's that good at their job would have ended up in this in this place. Mm. Uh, Dr. Lazarus got that sort of, you know, most company doctors are once shuttle ride away from a malpractice suit, you know. And, yeah. and so it's, you know, and, and, and that, again, is taken up in Alien 3, where mm. Charlie Dance is the colony doctor and he reveals that he's out there because he was off his tits on something and accidentally killed somebody with a patient with an overdose. Yeah. Um, and so that's why he's there and why he refuses to go home. Although his sentence is, is filled. He, he's, he's there basically paying lifelong penance. And there is this idea that this is, you know, a, a, a fairly low rent end of the industry and that nobody who was particularly valued would have ended up in this job. I mean, again, it's, 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 it's a quite a nice economy of storytelling because he just says, well, I am that guy, you know? And so it's hinted that maybe there have been some tragic career miscalculations. The cliche thing, of course, would have been to spell it out and point out that, you know, he was saying, here because he was you know he's serpico he was like you know the the one decent cop in a bad precinct and yeah. uh he was causing too much trouble so they've sent him off to the other end of the solar system whereas just the hint that maybe he's just a bit old and washed up and this is the only job he could get you know mm. um and that's that's quite a nice line you know i'm reminded of that line in um oh What's the movie with George Clooney? As is, Mike, is it Michael Clayton where yes. he realizes he's he's come part of a conspiracy and they're all out together with the conspiracy? And he confronts Tilda Swinton, who's in charge of the conspiracy. Says, "I'm not the guy you kill. I'm the guy you just pay off." Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like you know, I'm not a hero. I would have been perfect. It's it's you know, it's it's a quite a nice humble little scene from Sean. That it yeah, really is definitely. And uh, yeah, he 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 puts the he puts the hours in on this one, perhaps more than my memory was crediting him for. Mm. So after just... I mean, think about Sean, he was just so was such. Gone. No, go on. Sorry. No, it's okay. I, you, I, I didn't really have anything particularly valid to say. You decided <laughs> like you did. Yeah. I, I was going to say after that, he then gets the call from his wife, where he basically says. When the job's done, I'll come home. Yes, hmm. but at this point, he's not 100% convinced that he's going to be alive by the morning. No. Uh, and he does his best to disguise this from his wife, 
who is still in her notey, and she uh, <laughs> and, and she uh, she spends the whole movie in the notey, even when she's apparently on a space station. Uh, but um, she can obviously tell that not all is well, but doesn't push it because he's that kind of guy, you know. Um, but yeah, he has that little sad scene where he basically thinks he's saying goodbye to his wife and kid for the last time because in the morning, the train, sorry, I mean the space shuttle will be here and Frank Miller, sorry, I mean the company Hitman will arrive <laughs> and uh, he'll have to take them on on his own. Mm. And then it's back to the ticking clock, is it not? And uh, Yeah, well, the, this is when he goes to the canteen next- and says... Yeah, I could use a little help. Yeah. And uh, it's just like, you know, you're supposed to help us. Why aren't you protecting us? Where are your men? My men. My men are shit, he says, and wanders off. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then <laughs> the shuttle arrives. That's a good one. Then the shuttle arrives 42 minutes early, which, again, is kind of impossible. <laughs> uh, because, again, you know, it, 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 it was something interesting has happened to the laws of physics here in the space station. It's not like you suddenly get a decent, he- a decent hind wind. You know what I mean? No. You don't get favorable weather conditions or you don't get unexpectedly light traffic between, you know. So, yeah, the space shuttle arriving 42 minutes early is kind of against the laws of physics but hey ho the space shuttle's here and uh, there's some quite nice miniature work of the space shuttle landing at the station some quite nice kind of alien slash 2001 miniature work of the space shuttle landing which is all great and again it, it has that kind of slightly hard science feel to it and sean stays in his office watching the cctv of the people disembarking for the shuttle to see if he can pick out who the bad guys are and they're probably the ones who hang back and get shit loads of shotguns out of their back yeah i was gonna say luckily for him they're That'll fairly obvious <laughs> <laughs> that'll be them yeah. they're the ones who hang back after everybody's gone and then open their bags and get massive fucking guns out <laughs> uh so yeah that'll be them there then yeah uh, so and now the hunt is on the bad guys are pursuing sean through the station and uh he's sort of managed to he, he lures one of them into a corridor yeah. Which he has set to explode. Mm. And that's not the only uh, thing that explodes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, ba- yeah, exactly. So he lures one of them into a corridor, which basically appears to be made of kind of corrugated plastic. Mm-hmm. And having previously snuck outside and put a little explosive charge on the outside of it. So once he lures said bad guy with shotgun into this corridor, he locks the doors at both ends and blows the corridor up and bad guy gets, and bad guy bursts (laughs) because this is the movie where people burst. (laughs) Um, And now the second bad guy is pursuing him and he puts a spacesuit on and goes outside the station and he lures the bad guy into basically an enormous greenhouse. Mm, And that man is very Um, stupid that man's very stupid yeah now i'm not sure yeah this is one of those things where the hero gets off the hook through sheer ma- i mean in 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 very few other films have i seen a movie where a hero just gets let off the hook by how utterly incompetent the bad guys are yeah. there's that nice fight in the bathroom in jack reacher where they manage to knock each other out i okay. think that's quite funny yeah. but i mean that's very much being played for laughs mm. <laughs> that the two bad guys who try and beat him up in that bathroom are so fucking incompetent they just manage to punch each other's lights out while he's cowering in the bath um because of course Tom Cruise fits in a bath, which Jack Reacher wouldn't. Um, <laughs> big six foot five, uh, but you know, hey, the Jack Reacher's five foot nine in the movies. What can I tell you? But um, in the meantime, 
Uh, yeah, he lures him into the, the function of that greenhouse is never entirely explained. Um, no. In sunshine, the spaceship has a greenhouse in it because it replenishes their oxygen supply, which is quite a neat idea. Mm. Um, you know, the, the way of re replenishing the oxygen supply by having a greenhouse is quite a neat idea. Um, but in this, I don't know whether the greenhouse is meant to be replenishing the oxygen supply or whether they're meant to be growing food in it. But in any event, Sean puts a spaceship on and walks around on the outside of the greenhouse. Bad guy with a big shotgun is walking around on the inside of the greenhouse, sees Sean, and shoots at him. <laughs> Whereupon, he blows a hole in the greenhouse, the greenhouse shatters, everything gets sucked out into space, including the bad guy, who, of course, bursts. <laughs> and we, um, we also got Sean so, constantly going, uh, yes. uh, 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 inside uh, his spacesuit, uh, yeah, exactly. which is quite Inside funny. his spacesuit, yes. Which uh, the spacesuits, um, I think also like the ones in Aliens, have lights on the inside of the visor, which would make it absolutely impossible to see out. Yeah. It, 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 it enables you to see who's in there, yeah. which is necessary from a kind of a plot point of view. Yeah. But if you had a spacesuit with a row of lights inside the visor, you would just not be able to see out. Yeah. It's like driving at night with the, in, with the reading light on and your headlights off. <laughs> You'd crash. Um, <laughs> But anyway. My mate bought a toaster. We go through celebrities' Amazon purchase histories so you don't have to. Keep calm and love Dom Jolly, novelty keyring, yeah, and fridge that. magnets. Yeah, I love that. The G-spot. The good vibrations, guys. Green dot laser sight rifle gun scope. I've bought that quite a lot of times, I think. Right, okay. The sex doctor's guide to keeping it hot. Ah, oh, interesting. Did another child come along nine months later? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Loads of great apps up now, and new ones dropping every Monday. That's My Mate Bought a Toaster from Great Big Al. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ooh. 
these spacesuits have lights inside the visor, which would completely blind you. But um, so Sean is now, hurrah, we have defeated the two bad guys. But oh no, somebody else is after him now. He's wearing a spacesuit as well. And it is, of course, Sergeant Clark Peters, mm. who is not just uh, vague and useless. He's actually on the payroll. Whether it's whether he's always been on the payroll or whether he went on the payroll after Montone died is not made entirely clear. No. But he is now definitely working for the bad guys. So he and Sean have a fight on a big crackly solar panel, mm. um, which is quite nice. The fact that the solar panel kind of crackles. I mean, if... if Again, I don't think that's how solar panels work, but if this is some sort of compact solar system whereby the solar cells are right by the capacitors, that might work that way. And then eventually they have a couple of fights, they have a big long fight, I think, on at least a couple of occasions in which somebody's sleeve rides up to their elbow uh, and that got left in, uh, <laughs> expo- exposing a bit of bare arm. That's true. Um, that, that, yeah, there's a, cu- there's a couple of shots where, yeah, the suit, the suit's integrity is patently not everything that it might be. Uh, and that got left in. And then eventually he yanks one of Clark Peters' air tubes out. So we assume that Clark Peters will burst in due course, <laughs> but we do not see him burst because Sean pulls him off, throws him off the thing, mm. and you literally have the Wiley Coyote fall. Yes. Because you remember the way Wiley Coyote, he mm-hmm. would fall off a cliff and he would recede out of view and then in the distance there would be this little poof of dust when he hits the ground. Yeah. Well, in this, Clark Peters falls off this skyscraper-sized solar panel, falls all the way down, all the way down, all the way down, dismissive view, and then you just get a little bzzz, like a fly flying into one of those electric <laughs> fly trap things when he evidently hits the bottom. And I often wonder if Peter Himes put that in as a deliberate Wiley Coyote reference because it, it sure as hell looks like a deliberate Wiley Coyote mm. reference. So now Sean has defeated the two bad guys who came to the station and the bad guy. How he knows that's it for bad guys, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, because presumably, if Sergeant Clark Peters could have been turned against him, then all the schlubby cops are there. Or maybe he just thinks none of those schlubby cops would have the bulls to come after him, and he's probably right. Mm. So in any event, he stomps into the blue, he stomps into the canteen where he finds Director Shepard sitting in his usual table. Director Shepard stands up from his usual table and battered and bloodstained, Sean says, Shepard? Ah, oh, fuck it, and just punches him. Yeah. <laughs> Whereupon Shepard goes straight through his table arse first. <laughs> um, and then Sean, uh, do we then cut pretty much to the closing captions of Sean? Well, he's packing and said, then Lazarus comes to see him. That's says, right, he's packing, that's right, yes. You know, you, 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 what does she say? She yeah. says something nice. She says that she's going to stick around because everything's going to get turned to shit and she wants to see it. Yeah, And then Sean, yeah, says, exactly. so Sean says, you were a good friend. You're a good friend. Yes, oh. exactly. And as I really like the character of Dr. Lazarus mm. because it's, let's say, it's, it's, it's the one thing which makes this movie not utterly witheringly misogynistic as pretty much all movies were back then. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the fact that, yeah, again, it's, it's, she's a great character. She's a contemporary of Sean's. She's kind of an equal of Sean's. And she becomes his best pal and sidekick without there being even a hint of attraction between them. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, and I really like her character. I think yeah. she's probably the best character in the movie. And then yeah. we end as we began with shots of the station and green screen uh, uh, captions coming up saying a uh, message from uh, Marshall O'Neill, Marshall O, interestingly misspelt Neil, <laughs> uh, to his wife. 
uh, job done, heading for home, looking forward to sleeping with you for a year, which is quite a nice little punchline to the whole movie. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so Sean having defeated the bad guys is now on his way back to, uh, earth with his wife and kid and we are given to assume that earth is still relatively okay um there's a film called saturn three yes which is one of the most utterly chaotic science fiction movies ever made um it was was the script by martin amos and it was directed by like three or four different people and the bad guy's harvey keitel except he's dubbed by roy detrice and, and you've got that weird robot thing and- as well yeah, yeah, Kirk Douglas is in it and at one point gets naked for no reason whatsoever except for the fact that Kirk Douglas was 70. It was a ridiculously good Nick for 70 and wanted everybody to see what ridiculously good Nick for 70 he was in. And mm. Farrah Fawcett's in it for no obvious reason. And the one thing about it is, the plot of it is about trying to sort of genetically engineer crops because Earth is running out of food. And, and the whole movie is almost redeemed by the last shot, which is there's a completely functionless coda whereby Farrah Fawcett, who's the last survivor of the movie has gone back to earth. And the last shot is her looking out the window at earth and earth is fucked. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's just, it's, it's just this vision of a fucked earth Mm. that it's just kind of black and dirty and filthy. And the atmosphere is completely impenetrable except by sort of vague glittering lights poking out through this, permanent swirling black atmosphere and that whole movie is almost redeemed by the sheer balls of that last shot which is that yeah we fucked it earth is you know that's why we're having to do all this stupid shit in this movie is because earth is fucked i mean even silent running just tells you how fucked earth is it doesn't mm. actually show you how fucked it whereas in, in outland we are given into a state to understand that earth is still relatively unfucked um and then you know, off we uh, and 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 that's where it ends. Roll credits, roll Jerry Goldsmith movie, uh, yeah. music, and yes, I mean I I forget because I'm trying to remember when I saw this because I definitely remember it coming out. Hmm. I think I was twelve, and I think I was too young to go and see. It. Although I was too young to go and see Blade Runner when that came out, and I was twelve, and I didn't give a shit, just went and see it anyway. Hmm. I forget when I first actually saw this movie because there were a big. You know, uh, there were a lot of, I mean, again, it's getting back to what I was saying about the way this movie plonks itself uninvited in the reality of another movie. There were, of course, for the whole of the last few years of the 80s, and from, so 78 to about 81, 82, we were buried in Star Wars knockoffs. Mm. Um, we were inundated with Star Wars knockoffs, yeah, but none of them actually invited themselves into Star Wars's universe, you know, um, mm. the way uh, Outland just plonks itself down in Aliens' universe. But I remember thinking at the time that this looked like something different, you know. I mean, for a start, it's a space movie set in space, but on the poster, Sean is holding a pump-action shotgun. Yeah. And wearing a baseball cap. And you're just thinking, okay, this is... Because obviously, when this came out, I was aware of Alien, but had not yet seen it. Because Alien came out when I was nine. Um, So I was very aware of Alien, because it made such an impact when it came out. Mm. And I think I pretty much already knew about most of the really grotesque things that happened in it. Like the face hug and the chest burst, all that kind of thing. Because Alien's legend kind of preceded it. But I remember thinking when Outland came out that this looked like a different kind of sci-fi movie. That this looked like a... You know, a hard, it's trying, doing its best to be a hard science sci-fi movie rather than space opera, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, it comes to, I guess, almost what sort of defines space opera as a subdivision of science fiction is when it doesn't bother to explain that, to even attempt to explain how the technology works. 
Yeah. You know, um, Star Wars is set in a completely imaginary universe. It kind of lets itself off the hook vis-a-vis explaining how the technology works. It kind of doesn't have to. It kind of disobliges itself. Um, and then anything set sufficiently far in the future, like, I guess, Dune and other various things like that, then again, it doesn't really have to explain. But the stuff that's kind of set within a couple of hundred years like this and maybe Alien and, you know, certainly Blade Runner, you want to get to the, there needs to be at least a bit of a nod to credibility with regards to the, the, the technology and how it's all working. It's not that if you can't patent it, you can't write about it, but it, it needs to look like it. It at the very least doesn't outrage anything that we do know about science, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean... Did was this? Did this make money when it came out? I honestly don't know. I mean, no, it, I it must have done all right, or they wouldn't have given Himes two thousand and ten. Mm. You know, it must have at least done all right. I'll have a look now. Yeah, have a look. See, see, uh, uh, see it's, it's, it's. I mean, and also one wonders how um, because it works really well in its own terms. I mm. mean, actually seeing it again, I was. I thought, you know, let's do Outland. I think, and and, and I, I kind of remember it as being a bit dafter than it actually is. It's it, it it actually it takes itself about as seriously as it needs to 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 to, to sell the idea. And uh, God, have you found some stats? Yeah, it didn't it didn't blow anyone away. Sadly, it did. Um, it was eight. It's an eighteen million dollar budget, and it took well, it right. did about twenty million at the box office. So it's not. Huh, okay, a hit. so probably didn't do that one. Well, mm. maybe because this is also at the beginning of the VHS revolution. Yeah. So it strikes me as one of those movies that then becomes a, a VHS cult classic. Mm. You know, um, well, actually, this is a conversation I've had many times with many people. Is that when people compile, when you're Empire Magazine or you know Buzzfeed or whatever, when they compile those those polls of everybody's top ten movies of all time, yeah. everybody's favorite movies of all time. There's only ever about three that were actually hits when they came out. That's right, yeah. I mean, obviously, classically, the classic example of this, we keep mentioning it, is Blade Runner. Blade Runner died on its ass when it came out. Yeah. Um, because people were expecting Indiana Jones and the Killer Robots, mm. and they got this kind of weird, trippy gumshoe movie. Mm. You know, um, and and I, I, my thing, you know, I'm always blowing my own trumpet about this. I saw Blade Runner, its initial release, in 1982, and it absolutely blew my fucking mind and i spent years telling everybody i met that the best movie i've ever seen was blade runner and they'd literally never fucking heard of it mm. um and then it's only weirdly when it got re-released in 92 with the stupid fucking unicorn ham-fistedly shoved in the middle of it okay. the people started going on about it being this this neglected cloud oh, we're not gonna have that conversation <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about I the mean, final cut though uh, I don't like any of the cuts apart from the first one. No, I don't. This, this, this is one of my great heretical opinions. Uh, but increasingly, this appears to be less heretical because I couldn't find anybody to back me up over this, and nor could I find any anywhere other than the five-disc box set which came out with the final cut in 2008. Mm. I couldn't find anywhere any way of seeing the original theatrical version. But now, if you go to Sky Movies, all three versions are up there. Hmm. The 82 cut, the 92 cut, and the 2007 cut, they're all up there. Um, I actually particularly don't like the final cut because it removes one of my favorite shots of the movie, which is the patch of blue sky that the dove flies away into. Yeah. Because my, my, my feeling about the 82 thing is that thematically it's about stuff. Hmm. And neither of the other two versions are because ultimately I don't think Ridley Scott understood the story he was telling. Because the thing about Ridley Scott, uh, Mark Kermode summed this up better than anybody. So Ridley Scott's not a storyteller. Some directors are storytellers. Ridley Scott is not a storyteller. What Ridley Scott is, and he's the best ever at doing this, he is a world builder. Mm. Ridley Scott builds the world that the story happens in, and he does that better than pretty much any other director who's ever lived. Yeah. You know, his future 
in Alien and Blade Runner is the most convincing future you've ever seen to the point now where you almost can't do the future without ripping him off. His ancient Rome in Gladiator was the most convincing ancient Rome I've ever seen. Just even things like an American gangster, he creates the most convincing 1970s in any movie you've never seen seen that wasn't actually made in the 1970s. Mm. He's, he's, He's a genius for that kind of thing. But what he isn't really is a storyteller. And Blade Runner, the original 1982 version, it's about humanity. It's about a human being who's had all the humanity beaten out of him by the sheer relentless grimness of life in that universe, and who gets his humanity back through his interactions with machines who are desperate to be human. They teach him the value of humanity through their desperate quest to achieve it when he's basically abandoned it. And that's why even the happy ending is important because at the end, he drives off into the sunshine with Sean Young, not really caring the fact that she's not real either because he's got his lust for life back and he wants to enjoy every last minute of it. And that's why even that bit is important. But the thing is, there's a a thing about the way daylight works. I mean, some of this is serendipitous because the reason the sun is coming up behind Rutger Harris as he's dying on the rooftop is because that was literally their last night on that back lot and they were getting kicked off at 9am so they had to keep filming through the night. Mm-hmm. So by the time they actually got to filming Roy Batty's death scene, it was 6am and the sun was coming up. But the only patch of blue sky you see in that whole movie is the patch of blue sky that the dove flies away into. And I think that's important. And that's why one of the big changes of the final cut is they got rid of that and had just yet more gloom and night sky for the dove to fly into. It's like, no, that patch of blue sky was important, damn it. Mm. But yeah, I mean, so I, I find that more and more people seem to be coming around to my way of thinking that the original 1982 theatrical cut of Blade Runner is, and also, yeah, the voiceover is not great. It's clunky, and Harrison Ford is patently bored and resentful, but Deckard is bored and resentful, so it just sounds like he's keeping character. But my feeling about the voiceover is, I think it's a bit glib to dismiss the voiceover as superfluous when we've already had the benefit of it. I think if the initial release had come out without that voiceover, I don't think anybody would have had a fucking clue what was going on in that film. Because half the dialogue's in a made-up language, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it just plonks you down into its reality without any kind of explanation, you know? And, and I think the expository voice, yeah, it could have been better written and it could have been better performed, but I think it actually performs a function. So, yeah, I saw Blade Runner in 1982 and then just spent 10 years ranting about it to a completely clueless world who just didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. Uh, but I didn't see this. I didn't see this. I think I think, I think this came out the year before. So I seem to recall this came out the same summer as Time Bandits. And it came out in 1981. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, and I think so. And uh, and I think I was too young to blag my winters because I think this may even have been... What's, what's uh, was this when it came out? Was it? Because it was A's and double A's then rather than PG. Yeah, double A. Well, I might have been it because Blade Runner was double A as well. And I Mm. went to see that when I was nearly 13. and could just... Because AA was 14. It wasn't 15, if you remember. Um, And so I think by the time I was nearly 13, I could pass for 14. But when I was 11 and a half, I couldn't pass for 14. Huge though I was. Um, So I wasn't going to be able to get in to see this. And also, to be honest, it probably didn't directly appeal to me that much for all that I was a voracious science fiction nerd and would go and see pretty much anything with spaceships in it. Uh, it probably wasn't, you know, and, and I, I think it got a fair bit of coverage in sort of, you know, the starbursts of the world, which of course I was already an avid reader of. Mm. Um, I think it got a fair bit of coverage in that as, you know, cause of course, I guess also in those days, Sean Connery doing a sci-fi movie was kind of a big deal. Mm. 
I mean, I mean, you know, Highlander is sort of fantasy rather than sci-fi. You know, because there was still. I mean, everybody says that the one who broke the duck for this was Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes. Hmm. Was kind of the first time an A-lister had, had, had headlined a sci-fi movie, hmm. and then Charlton Heston there basically does sci-fi movies for the whole of the rest of the seventies. He does, you know, Amiga Man and Soylent Green and all that. And, yeah, uh, and 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 prior prior to that, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, in many respects, I've heard people say the Planet of the Apes impact on the public perception of sci-fi movies was about as big as as, as uh, two thousand one. It came out the same year, hmm. uh, but. 2001 is the one that everybody goes on about because it's the one that was made by Kubrick and written by Arthur Clarke and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Whereas, you know, um, Planet of the Apes was basically a bunch of people in rubber ape masks, but everybody forgets just how incredibly good those were and, you know, how, how well the ape makeup has aged yeah. um, from the the uh, from from the original ape movies. But also the fact that it was, uh, you know, it has that jaw-dropper of a downbeat ending and the leads played by Chuck Heston, who prior to that was regarded as the uh, the hero of glossy thrillers and biblical epics, mm. you know, and and not the kind of guy you found headlining a, a sci-fi movie. Sci-fi movies were generally headlined by guys like Leslie Nielsen, who was you know a, a dependable leading man, but very much a B-movie leading man, yeah. you know, and um, until he reinvented himself as a comic genius in the eighties, of course. But um, so yeah, I, I guess Sean Connery, who was still, I guess Sean. Also, when th- the, the 70s didn't really work that well for Sean. No. I think, in, in, in a weird kind of way. And it's also kind of how he aged. Um, because Sean was obviously drop-dead gorgeous when he was a young man mm. and then looked particularly fabulous once he was an old man, mm. but kind of didn't really suit middle age. No. He kind of didn't really suit being 40-something, but once he was 50 and then particularly 60-something, he looked brilliant. Mm. And when he was 30-something, obviously he was like, you know, devastatingly gorgeous. But, you know, when he was... Um... So I remember talking about that with my dad. Because, you know, of course, the Bond books had been a big deal for about six or seven movies by the time Dr. No finally came out. And mm. then there was much discussion as to who... It was, and, and it was fairly obvious from the minute Casino Royale came out that these are gonna, there's going to be movies of these at some point. It's just going to happen, you know. Mm. And obviously there'd been, you know, the TV movie of Casino Royale that nobody ever talked about them for about another 30 years. Yeah. And there was a lot of discussion as to who they were going to get to be this guy. And then much... He, he said that the, the, the most analogous thing he could remember was when we first saw Christopher Reeve in the Superman costume in about 1977 before mm. that movie came out and just the jaws hit the floor and where the hell did you find him mm. oh my god he's perfect you know what i mean mm. and it was the same kind of thing the first time they got a load of sean as james bond because everybody had this idea in their mind about what james bond should look like and sound like and talk like and it was only when they saw sean that they all realized that pretty much all of them had been thinking of him <laughs> <laughs> even though they'd never seen it. It's a, yeah, that's him. That's the guy I've had in my head when I was reading the books. It's been him the whole time. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary bit of casting. By the but, way, um, uh, but apropos yeah. of nothing, what did you think of the Blade Runner sequel? I loved it. Mm. I, I really loved it. I was dreading it and I mm. loved it. Um, because my thing about Blade Runner, it's a movie about which I'm weirdly protective. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and, I, and of all the movies I know, it's probably the one that wanted a sequel least. Yeah. Uh, and of course you had the 
weirdly problematic setup that by the time the sequel came out, time had pretty much caught up to it. You know, the, the, the sequel came out two years after Blade Runner itself is supposed to actually happen. Yeah. So the idea that this is set in our future has to be completely abandoned by then. Hmm. Um, but I thought it got around all I, I mean it's still i don't think a movie that was really necessary but i think mm. if you're gonna do a sequel to blade runner they did absolutely the right sequel to blade runner that you needed to do mm. because one thing it one thing it, it, it very neatly sidestepped the whole well it's 2017 and the 2019 of blade runner is patently not coming so when is this happening what they do is they set it it's now set in an alternate timeline and it's set 30 years after that 2019 not 30 years after our 2019 Mm. you know so it's now set in a completely fictitious timeline because you know it's still nobody has a cell phone yes that's true (laughs) the the one thing that everybody giggles about in blade runner is that you've got flying cars you know colonies on other planets and uh and 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 humanoid robots but nobody has a mobile phone (laughs) uh and again in blade runner 2049 still nobody has a mobile phone um but they, so they, they sidestep that by having it very much set in that world, which is now a fictitious timeline. But what they really managed to do, which is the thing I was really dreading, is it doesn't nail its colours as to which version of Blade Runner it's a sequel to. Because I didn't want them to settle the issue of whether or not Harrison Ford is a replicant. Because, of course, in my mind, he's absolutely not. Mm. Um, but I know in a lot of fans of Blade Runner's mind, he absolutely is. And I really didn't want them to settle that, but I knew there was no way they could get away without addressing it. But what they did is really nice. They addressed it and didn't settle it. Yes, <laughs> they absolutely. brought it up. They brought it up, but they didn't. They, they, they asked the question and then didn't answer it. And I thought, good, good. So this is still a sequel to my Blade Runner. So my Blade Runner can still be to use that dreaded of all fandom words, canon. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> This works as a sequel to the Blade Runner I like, as well as a sequel to the Blade Runner that all the people who were wrong like. Right. Um, <laughs> well, we've so the, I was pleased about that. We've reached the point where I'm going to ask you some quick-fire questions. Go for it. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Mitch Ben, what's your favourite Bond film? Oh, crumbs. Probably Casino Royale. Mm. As in the, the Daniel Craig yeah, one. Sure. Because I think it's actually the best one. Um... All Bond movies, nearly all Bond movies have a moment where I go, oh, what the fuck did you do that for? Mm. Um, even Skyfall, I think, lets itself down on a number of occasions. Yeah. And Skyfall's pretty damn good. Mm. Uh, it's not as good as everybody says it is. Quantum of Solace isn't as bad as everybody says it is. And Spectres are fucking shambles. I'd agree uh, with that, yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Casino Royale pretty much doesn't put a foot wrong from the minute it begins to the minute it ends. Uh it's it's you know um it's it's even got and i'm a bit of a snob that basically all the ones that are neither john barry nor uh david arnold slightly rub me up the wrong way yeah um with the sole exception of live and let die because george martin's john barry impression is as good as david arnold's john barry impression Mm. but basically bond movies need to sound like john barry and david who i kind of know from having worked with him on a few things is absolutely uh, unapologetic about the fact that when he's got his bond hat on he's doing his john barry impression (laughs) That's right. You know, that's the sound you want for these things, and that's what we're going to do. I'm wondering what Hans Zimmer's going to come up with for the next one. Because admittedly, I, I found his Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack to be better than I'd expected it to be. Mm. Uh, 
because he was kind of unapologetically doing Vangelis for quite a lot of it. You yeah. know? So, yeah, that's what you need. Um, but, yeah, I would honestly say, I mean, we did, I just did a video about, uh, in which I talked about my, my heretical opinions about Honor Majesties, by the way. Honor, when I was a kid, it was universally accepted that Honor Majesties was the worst one because George is shit. Yeah, and then it went this weird reappraisal in the eighties, and particularly it was championed by the Fleming purists, mm. and then it became Onomatsudis would be the best one except George's shit, right? Mm -hmm. And I watched it again recently. Onomatsudis is actually a bit of a mess, and George is surprisingly good. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, George is surprisingly good. George is surprisingly okay, and given his second or third Bond movie, would have probably been right up there with the best of them. Yeah. When you consider that, basically, you know. His sole acting experience up to that was a chocolate commercial. Mm. In 2012, I did a Kleenex commercial. I've had as much big screen acting experience as George Lazenby had when they made him fucking James Bond. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, Honor Majesties is actually a bit of a mess. It's totally uneven. The pacing's all to shit. It sticks very closely to the book, but so fucking what? That doesn't make it a good movie. You know, um, whereas the Fleming purists insist that it's the best because it sticks to the book. But actually, the way it sticks to the book also makes a nonsense of the ongoing continuity of the films. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Bond meets Blofeld and they're in each other's company for 48 hours before either one of them owns up to knowing who the other one is. Mm. Because in the books, they've never met before. But in the movies, they've just met. Yes. Now, they were both played by different guys, but that doesn't actually change anything. No. You know? um, so, yeah, Casino Royale, it's, it's, I think it's the best damn one. I think it's an almost perfect movie. I don't think it puts a foot wrong. All right, so for the worst one, I think you've already answered it. Ah, uh, no, the worst one's Octopussy. Ah, even though it's because got Berkhoff. Even though it's got Burkhoff, the bits of Burkhoff are okay, but of all the film, all the Bond films, whenever I watch the Bond films, of all of them, even Man with the Golden Gun, mm. that's the one where I feel the least fucks are being given mm. <laughs> by all concerned. I just get the feeling when I'm watching this movie, nobody making this movie gives a fuck. <laughs> Yeah. you know what I mean except maybe the stunt coordinators they're putting in the hours as usual but I get the feeling that the scriptwriters didn't give a fuck John Glenn didn't give a fuck Roger doesn't give a fuck Louis Jordan doesn't give a fuck you know I just get the feeling and that's probably unfair because you should never judge people's I mean yeah and in fact I kind of retract that because the one criticism that really pisses me off is when people call my stuff lazy mm. it's like fuck you you have no idea what went into the production of this you can say it's shit by all means yeah. Go right ahead and say shit, but don't be telling me it's lazy because you have no idea how much effort I did or didn't put into this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, um, um, the, the end result you can judge, but the process you don't get to judge because you weren't fucking there. So it could well be that they worked as hard on that movie as they did on anything, but the feeling that I get when I want, given that movie of all the Bond movies is the ones where they it, they, it just doesn't feel like anybody gives a shit in watching that film. You know what I mean? It yeah. just feels like larks. It just feels, everything feels phoned in. You yeah. know, the script, the, the theme tune is a fucking afterthought. You know, everything feels phoned in when I watch that. It really, it just feels weak. It feels yeah. lame. Yeah, it does. View to a Kill, for my money, is way better. The only thing mm. which is wrong with View to a Kill is Roger Moore looks like your dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he, 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 you know, it, if he'd be quit after For Your Eyes Only, that would have been a, pretty much perfect little run of Bond movies. Definitely. You know, because even Moonraker, which is unbear... See, Moonraker is stupid, right? Mm. Moonraker is the stupidest Bond movie. Mm. Uh, it's got Michelle Lonsdale, who is one of the best bad guys ever, 
but it's just a stupid film because it's it's the most blatant bit of bandwagon jumping they ever did. Because, you know, as we know, in the end credits of Spy Who Loved Me, it says James Bond will be back in Fewer Eyes Only. But then they went, oh, shit, Star Wars, Space One, Space One. Have we got a Space One? Is there a Space One? Moonraker, it's got a rocket in it. It's not quite a Space One. Fuck it, Space One. We're doing a Space One. Um, And, you know, they are so, it's so obviously just on the hoof. Right, what's happening in space? Uh, Well, you know what happened in the last one? Yeah, all right, not see space. (laughs) Now do it again. Because the plot of, you know, I mean, uh, and it wouldn't be so bad, really, not for the fact that Spyro Love Me is the same plot as, t- as You Only Live Twice anyway. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so so Spyro Love Me is the same plot as You Only Live Twice, except not space, but sea. And then all they do in Moonraker is put it back in space. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's just, ah. So Moonraker is the stupidest one, but the, it, 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 it still looks like there's a fair bit of time and effort, whereas Moonraker, uh, Octopus is just, it feel, it's, it's filler. It feels like album filler. That's yeah. what it it feels like it does if you're watching the james bond movies like a rock album it feels like you know the kind of track you stick halfway down side two when the drummer wrote one so you can have to stick it on or he'll quit <laughs> you know um <laughs> it feels like album philly octopus it's, it's not bad but it's just it's just lame all right um yeah can you give me your best made-up bond film title oh crumbs i should have thought of one of these beforehand shouldn't i well why, why the fuck have they not done shatterhand yet yeah i suppose because it sounds I heard, like shatterhand yeah, possibly mm. shat in your hand. Maybe, mm. that, but, but I'd heard rumor before they announced No Time to Die that it was going to be called Shatterhand. Yeah, because Shatterhand, Doctor Emil Shatterhand is Blo is Blofeld's weird um, alias in mm. the book of You Only Live Twice, and I wonder if yeah they 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 dodged it because somebody said no it sounds like shit in your hand you know yeah, yeah. Uh, but I always thought Shatterhand was a great name for a Bond movie and I was amazed that they never quite got around to it yet hmm. I mean they haven't done property of a lady yet but then that's a really weird kind of rom-com title and also they use most of the plot of that in Octopussy that's right yeah but um, yeah but I don't know I mean made up Bond movie title ah uh, um I don't know uh Fire Bottle there you go <laughs> what was that again Fire Bottle Fire Bottle <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Yes, fire bottle. Yes. All right. Well, yes. b- Bond is full of silly lady names such as Holly Goodhead, yes. Tool, etc. Can you give me a Bond lady name? Um, there's a friend of mine on Twitter who goes by a made-up Bond lady name. She calls herself Windy Beaver. <laughs> Windy Beaver. So she kind of she kind of beat me to it. <laughs> mm. I'll take that as it were. Yes. Uh, and finally, who would you have as James Bond yes. next? Oh crumbs! Uh, I, I I have no particular preference for it, but I do. Def- I I did make a whole video about not who I would cast as James Bond, but how I would go about recasting them. I'll be interested in your thoughts on this. Mm. I don't think they can just do what they always do and bring in a new Bond and carry on regardless. I think they've got to write Daniel Craig out. Yeah. Because I think the difference between the Craig movies and all the previous iterations is there is actually a through story. Mm, wow. You know, so that when Judy Dench wanted to leave, they didn't just recast her, they wrote her out and actually wrote the new M in. Mm. And I think that the, given that the movies do actually have a through story, you know, obviously Quantum begins like five minutes after uh, Casino ends, then Skyfall back refs and then uh, Quantum of Solace back refs Casino. Um, and so Quantum of Solace uh, back refs um, Casino quite heavily, then Skyfall back refs both of them, then obviously Spectre back refs everything 
thing way too fucking much. Yeah. I mean, it consists of entirely of back references. And, yeah. and, and who knew that one of the best actors in the world would be a shit blowfelt? Anyway, never mind. Um, <laughs> I've actually got a theory about Spectre, which I won't bore these good people's ears with, but it's something I'd like to talk to you about. Uh-huh. I think there was a twist ending they bottled out of. You think? I think there's a twist ending they bottled out of. Well, nothing that happens from the drill through the skull scene onwards makes a lick of sense. No, it's true. It doesn't. Nothing that happens from the from the torture sequence onwards actually makes any sense. And there is one shot which looks to me like a reference to something, which is a clue. The shot where he's standing facing, um, oh, well, I can't even remember, Madeline. Hmm. And then he says, let's go home. And the lab blows up. Yeah. It's framed exactly like the last shot of Total Recall. Yes, it is. I think that because I know I've heard um, whoever it is who's writing, though, Time to Die, said he toyed with this idea, actually. I think initially the whole of the last half hour of Skyfall is meant to be a dream sequence. Of Spectre? Yeah. Yeah. Of of Spectre, rather. I think initially Mm. the whole of the last half hour of Spectre was meant to be a dream sequence Mm. that's going through his mind as he's having his brains drilled into. Because if you watch it like that, all the weird shit that happens makes perfect sense. If it's actually supposed to be happening, none of it makes sense. Mm. I think they bottled it. I think initially Spectre was meant to have a cliffhanger ending and it was meant to have the same ending as Brazil. Mm. Whereby the happy ending turns out to be a mass hallucination he's having while he's being tortured. That would have been a much better ending, wouldn't it? I think, but that's what, to me, because I was waiting for that reveal the whole time I was watching Spectre, mm. thinking none of this is happening. Mm. It's yeah, and that's what that weird Total Recall reference is meant to put you in mind of because Total Recall is meant to keep you guessing for the whole time as to whether any of this is happening or whether it's just the holidays ordered. Well, also, you the, know, also um, the fact that he walks out of Blofeld's lair and like there's like five or six bad guys and they offer very little resistance and yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. The whole of the of Spectre, you rewatch Spectre, force yourself to rewatch Spectre mm. and have in mind the idea that everything that happens from the drill going through his skull onwards is a hallucination. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense, and it's building up to an agonizing twist reveal, which I think was in there at one point, and I think they bottled it. I genuinely think that is, is what happened. Because that, for me, would have saved the whole movie. But Because yeah. up until then, it's not bad. It's a bit all over the place, but it's not bad. But yeah. the last half hour just feels like bullshit. Mm. You know, it just feels like weird fantasy bullshit. And, mm. uh, and that, to my mind, I think that's what they... So, yeah, so apparently I read a, an interview with either Kari Fukugawa, whoever it is, has written a screenplay for uh, No Time to Die, that they toyed with having that as, as, as the opening. Wow. That the, 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 the whole of the last half hour of Spectre was a dream. <laughs> I would have been bold, um, but it would have been so good. Like, a proper film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, because I mean, it's a bit like the beginning of the the uh, the book of Oh, Man with a Golden Gun. Yeah, where you went, you went because you only live twice ends on a cliffhanger with an amnesiac Bond wandering off to Russia and not knowing, really knowing why. Mm. And then the, you know the book of Man with a Golden Gun begins with an apparently perfectly hale and hearty Bond walking into MI6 and shooting M. Yeah, because he's been you know the whole time he's been in the Russia he's been he's been in Russia he's been reprogrammed yeah. so yeah that was great well actually the uh, the Booker from Russia with Love ends on a cliffhanger because Rosa Klebb gets him with the poison shoe and he collapses hmm. and that's how the book ends and then the book of Doctor No which weirdly is the next one the films are the in the other way around hmm. begins with Bond recovering in hospital and from having been kicked with Rosa Klebb's poison shoe. Huh. Um, so yeah, the book from Russia with Love ends with a cliffhanger. You don't know whether he's dead or not. Um, but yeah, that, that that. So what were we talking about? Who would you? Yeah, I think you need to write Daniel Craig out. And I've done a video as to how I think you should do it. Mm. How you introduce the new Bond 
because I think, you know, and I, and I know th this is the point at which basically the code name idea actually has to come in. Because one thing about the Bond movies, of course, is they completely abandoned any notion of having any kind of con uh, coherent continuity, really, uh, certainly from Pierce onwards. And then from, from from Daniel Craig onwards, they absolutely make it clear that they've abandoned the continuity and that, that and the casino is basically a reboot. Mm. Um, because while Tim is much younger than Roger, oddly he's not much younger than George. Mm. Uh, they're they're actually similar ages, Tim and George. Because of course George was much younger than he looked. Mm. George was twenty eight. Yeah, he looks about forty, but he was twenty eight yeah. when he when when he did. Um, and, and and at the time, and I know that when George quit, Tim was one of the first people that they asked. Yes, and he was about twenty six at the time, and he turned him down because he thought he was too young. Yeah. and then they got Sean back, and then I don't know whether they bothered offering it to Tim again after Sean left the second time. So I think it's that Roger had finally come free, and they'd secretly really wanted Roger ever since the sixties. Yes, um, and then. Yeah, but say you can just about imagine that it's a coherent continuity up to it, including License to Kill. Um, but really, from GoldenEye onwards, it's obviously not. And but the Daniel Craig movies, they do have a through line. They they do have a consistent plot. And I think in order, I think you need to write him out, and I think you need to write a new James Bond. In. Yeah. And of course, if you did that, that absolutely frees you up to cast Idris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Although Idris might be cracking on a bit. I mean, the, the right age for Bond is 40-ish. Yeah. Well, yeah, so Idris, 30s, Idris is the same age as me. Yeah. So, who's that? Yeah, 40-ish. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Bond should be should look not much younger than about 35 and not much older than about 45. Yeah. If at all possible. That's the right kind of age for him. So, I mean, but, I, mean I don't know, because I do know that initially for Casino, they were consider considering having him an actual kind of... Um, you know, rookie agent, yeah. and they were going, and, and Henry Cavill yeah. got very close. Yeah, uh, who turns in a very fine sort of pretend James Bond act in in Man from Uncle, yes. where of course he's playing Napoleon Solo, mm. um, and he wouldn't be bad. But it's just how many franchises can one guy hold together just because he's got a good chin? Mm. Um, I don't know. Tom Hardy's not tall enough, but then again, neither Daniel Craig, strictly speaking. And like I say, we live in a world where Jack, uh, Tom Cruise is Jack Reacher. <laughs> um, he'd probably do it though. Mm. Um, that James Norton guy, everybody seems quite keen on. I think it's because he kind of looks like an intermediate stage between Daniel Craig and Pierce Brosnan. Yes. If you did one of those computer morphs from Daniel Craig's face into Pierce Brosnan <laughs> and paused it at about 40%, you'd have James Norton. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of great bonds. I don't think who... I kind of have confidence in them, in them casting it because Craig was such a radical idea and it worked so well yeah. that I kind of have confidence in them to cast it. But what I'm more interested in is not who they cast, but how they go about doing it. Cause I don't think you can just do what they've always done and, Oh, it's a new James Bond, but everything else just carries on regardless. I don't think they can do that now. I think Craig's got to be written out. I think that James Bond actually has to have some kind of exit. And I think a new James Bond has to be written in. Hmm. I think I, I genuinely think they have to do that. Wow, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think about this shit way too much. <laughs> well, Mitch, it's been absolutely <laughs> wonderful having you on to talk about Outland. Thank you. Thank you. It's been splendid. It has. That's uh, uh, wonderful. Your little jingle, by the way. Who's that doing the Sean voice? <laughs> oh, who says there's uh, Smash Pod Royale? Yeah, who says Smash Pod? It's Rufus, Pod Rufus Wright. Good on him. He yeah. does a very good job. He does a very good job. Well, Mitch, thank you very much. You're welcome. I'll speak to you soon. You will. Cheers, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
I'm Keza McDonald. And I'm Ellie Gibson. And this is our new show, Extra Life. It's basically us talking to funny people about video games. When I was a kid, it was Grand Theft Auto. There's Sinclair ZX Spectrum. We talk about the games people remember from when they were kids and what they're playing now. Guitar Hero. The Last of Us 2. Combat on the Atari 2600. No, I love Pokemon. Anyway, find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Extra Life. GreatBigOwl.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.